0: Or does this winter seem never-ending? Well, we've got just what you need to get your heart rate up in a good way. This week, we're chatting with thriller writer Steve Barry about his latest Cotton Malone adventure and why it's a lot harder to write about conspiracy theories than actually live them. Later, we have a long-distance call with British crime fiction author Lucy Atkins, whose Magpie Lane is a love story that happens to contain a crime and maybe a few ghosts. This is Chapter 176 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and all that is coming up next. Author Steve Barry has been one of our regular guests since this podcast first started way back in 2017. Obviously, I can't get enough of his blend of history and thrillers featuring his former Justice Department operative and trouble magnet, Cotton Malone. The Kaiser's Web is the 16th book in the series, and as you'll hear, it marks a first for Steve. I always know I'm going to learn some new historical tidbit whenever I pick up one of your books. Tell us about The Kaiser's Web.
1: Well, this is a a fun one for me because I've been wanting to put cotton into a World War II adventure for a long time. I just never could come up with something that would work. It's been done to death. Like eight billion things have been done. But about two years ago, I was researching another novel, and I came across something that I didn't know, and – piece of information that was very fascinating. And it has not been done very much. So the Kaiser's Web was born from that. So Cotton gets caught up in this mystery from World War II that still has bearing today and will greatly affect the German national election. So it was a it was fun to finally get to uh, to, to get him into that.
0: Now, we don't want to give any of the details away, but there it is something having to do with Adolf Hitler, which I guess people can kind of assume from the book being a World War II type of mystery.
1: It does, but it's not your typical, it's not what you think. And uh, it deals with some, uh, an aspect, more particularly it deals with Martin Bormann, who was Hitler's main assistant. And what happened on April 30th, 1945, the day Hitler died, which no one really knows. This is not a book about Hitler surviving the war or anything like that. This is something something much different, something real that, as I said, I didn't know a lot about. But now that I, I looked at it, it was fascinating, and it made for a great thriller.
0: I know I'm a big fan of your books because I love the way you explore these historical mysteries. And not only are they a thrill to read, but you start thinking, what if? Why do you find these kinds of stories so appealing to write?
1: Because there are escapes, there are ways you can get out. You can suspend your belief for a little bit, but I try to make it where you don't have to suspend a whole bunch of your belief. Because I keep the story about ninety percent to history as close as I can. I trip it up just enough because I have to make it entertaining. It is a novel, but I find it interesting. But these 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 little known things from the past that that we go like wow i just had no idea that would that actually happen or that was there and then the cool part is that thing's still being relevant today i have to have both of those elements present and kaiser's web has both of those cotton also gets to go to some new places uh, i sent him to south south america which i've always been wanting to do south africa switzerland he's been you know these are three new locales for cotton then we get back to germany but and it also deals though with with something very timely the rise of the nationalistic right in europe which is occurring now in, in alarming speed over there and it's an inter- it's a phenomenon that's going on and this book will does explore that
0: i think a lot of american readers you know they tend to have blinders on when it comes to what's happening in the world around them they're just really worried about what's happening in the us and the you know the last 4 years has given people a lot to worry about But this this rise of nationalism in Europe is is really become a large problem. And it's some people say we're heading towards another World War Two in some cases.
1: Well, hopefully, hopefully not. Hopefully we're we're so inter that was really what nato and all of the alliances were about we get so intertwined with one another that we literally can't fight each other because we're so codependent on one another and there is a lot of that there but there's also the rise of of that 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 rise of hate and that rise of nationalistic fervor in Europe, which is which is creating a lot of problems. Europe is in a kind of a downslide. It has been for a couple of decades now, and there's a lot happening over there. This novel will, I hope, alert American readers a little bit to what's going on there. I, I, I found it fascinating researching it. And the German national elections are fascinating too because they, they, they their campaigns are run much differently than ours. There's a lot of that's a lot very different and the reader's gonna get an appreciation of that too.
0: Are you ever worried you're gonna run out of ideas or little historical stories that people haven't stumbled across yet to, to- I
1: hope not. I hope not. (laughs) I'm done. If it happens, Uh, they they get they're getting harder. I will say they're getting harder to find because I don't like to do anything that someone's already done. I want something fresh and something new and something unique. I'm fortunate that I'm okay till about 2025. I'm all right for the next three years. And every time I think, well, I'll never find another idea, one just sort of drops in here. The one thing I've learned about ideas, the, the one place they never come from is when you go looking for them. They have to find you.
0: Do you have readers who, who send you stories that they think maybe you don't know yet?
1: I do get those quite a bit. I'm very careful about those, though, uh, because uh, you know you, you have to be careful that people say well, you stole my idea or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, ideas are not copyrighted. You know, unfortunately, they're they, you know they are available to everyone. I, I've never, I have to say this, I've never gotten anything from a reader that I've actually used or written about. But I have got some interesting things they've sent me from history that I've read about that I found fascinating. That just none of them ever materialized into a novel.
0: You know, we seem to be witnessing living history every day these this last year in particular. Do you think, you know, with everything that's happened, that some, you know, author, it'll turn into their historical thriller, like 60, 75 years from now?
1: I know, but the readers will read it and go like, that's no way. There's, 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 there's no way. I mean, I said this the other day to somebody You know, with all the conspiracy theories. Unfortunately, when you write a novel, I just can't make up a conspiracy theory and just pull it out of thin air and throw it in there. And here it is. It has to be believable. It has to be plausible. It has to have some rationality to it. Otherwise, the reader will just completely reject it. And unfortunately, in real life, those rules don't seem to apply. So novelists have to be a lot more careful with their conspiracy theories. They have to they have to go to great lengths to back them up and give them credibility, where in the real world, it doesn't seem that's the case anymore.
0: It's almost a little bit harder to write it than to actually live it then.
1: Uh, exactly right. It is a lot <laughs> harder to write it than it is to live it.
0: Well, I know that I enjoyed The Kaiser's Web. Steve Berry. it's always such a joy to talk to you and to learn something every single time I pick up one of your books.
1: Well, thank you. And and if anybody wants to find out more about me or my books, they can go to steveberry.org. Everything's there, and The the Kaiser's Web is is out there in stores now.
0: Spooky, haunting, heartwarming, unputdownable— Those are just a few of the adjectives readers have used to describe Magpie Lane, the new literary thriller from author Lucy Atkins. The story centers around the mysterious disappearance of the child of an Oxford College master. But as the reader slowly learns, nothing is as it seems. There's not a lot I can say about Magpie Lane without giving the plot away, except that I was compulsively turning the pages because I was so eager to find out if my theory about what was going on was actually true what are you telling would be readers to entice them to pick the book up?
2: <laughs> um yeah, it is a bit it is a bit awkward because you don't want to give away the plot and um and it's kind of hard to describe it without without giving things away, but what I'm I suppose what I think um is intriguing for people is that it's it's difficult to classify the novel. It's kind of a mystery. It's got some elements of crime. It's a literary gothic feel. It's a I think it's a love story, um, and it's it centres around Oxford University and the city of Oxford and the kind of bookish ghosts that wander through the kind of streets and cloisters of this ancient institution. Um, And and it centres particularly around a nanny to a small child, an eight-year-old girl who's mute and is the daughter of the master of one of the colleges. So it's really about class and privilege and the tricky family that this nanny has found herself in. Um, I'm hesitating because I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the spoil the plot. But that's that's basically it's a sort of it's sort of layers of Oxford.
0: I think we can say that Dee, who's your nanny, is a bit of an unreliable narrator. But at the same time, you kind of find yourself sympathetic towards her and even rooting for her a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm really interested in grey areas and in the sort of. Um, someone described it as moral vertigo when somebody's when, when something's wrong, but you it's also right at the same time and you, and you just can't really get your head around it. And that's what I'm really interested in is this situation that she finds herself in um, with this child who she really feels is, is being horribly neglected by her privileged family. And, um, and really what she can, what can she do to save this child? and, and to love this child and to bring, to bring the child out of herself. Um, but of course, Dee's got her own story and she's got her own issues. She's a sort of um, older nanny. She's, she's sort of in her 40s and she's Scottish and she's got a very difficult history, which will gradually, gradually come out as the novel progresses.
0: I think here in the US, a lot of people think of nannies as very young people. So for me it was kind mm. of refreshing to be reading about Dee and realizing she's lived a lot of life and that's really what contributes to her character and, and to the plot of the story.
2: I was really intrigued in her because she's this sort of character she's not she's not beautiful. She's she's the sort of person who's easily overlooked and people dismiss her as just the nanny. And she's actually the cleverest person in the in the book and she's in the middle of Oxford University and what I was really loving was the when she goes head to head with her boss who is the master of an oxford college so he's extremely brilliant and erudite and um has all the power but she's his equal and he knows it <laughs> and that i i really love writing about women of it in a, i mean she's quite young really for this but women in a, of a certain age who are just very difficult to deal with <laughs> and, and very clever and um, and that's why I really just loved writing about that. They, they don't necessarily make the most lov- lovable characters, but they, they're certainly for me, they the most interesting.
0: For me, the setting uh, of Oxford and the college, the town, the the people in it, the ghosts, as you mentioned, it felt sort of like a, I was looking at a dollhouse and you, you, you kind of either took the, the the roof off of it and we could peer inside and see what everybody was up to. You actually teach creative writing at Oxford. Was the, did this get weird at any point for you? With,
2: or were you worried oh, no. at all
0: about exposing, you know, some of these secrets? Yeah.
2: Well, somebody did say, you know, I'm biting the hand that feeds me um, because it isn't a sympathetic portrayal of... Of a certain aspect of Oxford University, that elite, um, power, power sort of dri- power-driven, clever, ego-driven side of high-level academia, I, I find really interesting, and the politics of these. Oxford is divided into. Lots of small colleges. Each of them is medieval and um, and complex, and has its own governing body. And they're they're notorious for terrible rows because you've got a lot of highly intelligent nitpickers who <laughs> are all trying to govern the same institution together. And um, and I love that. You know, that's just gold dust for a writer. and And I wanted to kind of enter into that. But also look at it from the eyes of someone who doesn't actually belong in it. So then nanny, she's in it, but she doesn't belong there. And Oxford is all about who belongs and who doesn't. That feeling that you're not quite in there, but you are. Is it still I, very much a boys club still, as well? It's changed. I mean, it has changed. I would say it's, it's modernised and it's not as bad as it was, but there's elements of that definitely. And what, well, actually another way in which the university is sort of modernising is that it's. it used to be that the master of a college would be this sort of this old white man who was incredibly at the, at the top of his game and this was his sort of easing into retirement. He'd be running the college and everyone would think he was wonderful and he'd had lots of dinners. Um, and nowadays they're realising these are financial institutions, they're little businesses, they need to make money. So they're bringing in often people from the media or industry and um, these are people who've done really well in the BBC or, or something and who are brought in to kind of get get raise funds you know raise the profile of the college and um, the master of the college in Magpie Lane is that he's he's used to work at the BBC he's very smooth he's very well connected and he's he goes into this kind of viper's nest of old Don's who are very resistant to glamour and money, and um, and there's a sort of explosion there. And I think that is, as far as I've been told from people I know who, who are in this position, that's pretty accurate.
0: <laughs> I love to. Um, you managed to weave a, a ghost story into the the main story. And For the longest time, I'm like, oh, this ghost story. I wonder, like, what's it going to tell me? Where is it going? And it was just it was just an enjoyable ghost story for a little while. (laughs) And I guess Oxford must be filled with ghost stories.
2: Oxford is filled with ghost stories. And in fact, one of the characters in Magpie Lane, Linklater, he's called a house detective. So he goes in and does histories of of houses. And he also has a sideline as a ghost tour operator. So he takes tourists around at night, showing them the spooky spots of Oxford and telling stories. And in the research, I went on two of these ghost tours and learnt a lot about the ghosts of Oxford and and they're everywhere and it's it's slightly alarming. Now I know this. I keep walking around corners and thinking, Oh no <laughs> <laughs> What
0: what do you want readers to, to to take away from the story?
2: I think I don't really have that sort of thought as a writer. I I, I think I write what I write and then I send it out there and, and sort of think, well that's really up to you. Um which sounds like a cop out but but what i 'm concerned about i 'm really writing about belonging and how people how people create families of their own people whose families are a disaster create find they find families they find alternative families and I'm, i 'm suppose if i'm writing about anything i 'm writing about that, but i 'm also writing about class and i 'm writing about literary history and um and being haunted by loss um what people read into your book you know but you can't really control that as a writer and I think the lovely thing about Magpile and the response to it has been amazing in in Britain and and people so many people have written to me and almost everyone is writing to me with a different it's something different that they found in it which I think is is actually really wonderful it sort of makes me feel that that people are shaping it to their own needs and I know we can't
0: talk too much about what those letters might say because we're going to give away the plot of the book. But I'm sure that having read it myself, I'm, I I can think of the situations and the characteristics or the personality traits of certain characters that – and the things that people have gone through that people must be identifying with because there's just – there's so yeah. much there. And it's so real.
2: yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely I mean there's loss in the book and there's grief and and people respond to that and there's actually the the, the unexpected thing for me was the the character of Linklater who I mentioned early, earlier is sort of he's this nerdy um, would be academic who's now a house historian and ghost tour person and he now has his own fan club in the UK he's obviously people love him so much particularly women single women. <laughs> He, he, it's amazing, you know. If you're a nerdy, bookish man, you have no idea how many women are out there wanting.
0: That is so funny, considering how, in their life. considering what his character is is like. He's awkward, and he's wrapped up in his mm-hmm. own mind, and he's not really paying attention to to the signals and the signs of anybody in the world.
2: <laughs> no, except D. I think he's. I think he's tuned into his friendship, and he and he's loyal and um and he's got a lot of love to give
0: you know briefly before I let you go we haven't really we haven't really talked about you know the the child in your book who plays a large role, and the fact that mm-hmm. um she's selectively mute, which it's shocking to read it because you you know I think a lot of people are like, well that's you know that's not true the, the kid's just choosing not to talk to people, mm-hmm. and it, what was that process like for you in creating this character?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I did a lot of research about selectively mute children and um and it's surprisingly common. I can't remember the statistic, but it's surprisingly common. And it's an anxiety, it's a sort of form of anxiety disorder and it's often perceived as stubbornness that a child is refusing to speak or it's misconstrued that a traumatic event's happened. The child is silent, but actually often children who are selectively mute mute. really you know it's a lot there's a long history of this and it's an anxiety response Um, and I really wanted to write about that and obviously Felicity's that my child in Magpie Lane her her mutism has been exacerbated by the loss of her mother when she was very young but it was always there and Dee the nanny is really one of the only people that have been able to tune into Felicity and communicate with her and understand her and not put pressure on her to speak whereas her family or you know it's just they're just embarrassed by her silence and, and cross with her and can't really get their heads around it Um whereas Dee feels her way through it and so yeah it was I found it very fascinating to research and to talk I talked to a couple of people about it and I talked to a mother who's his daughter had been selectively mute for a long time, and and it and, it's, and silence is incredibly powerful. And I really wanted to explore that.
0: And I think you do. And I think also it's amazing how she's still able to communicate, even though she's not used.
2: Yeah, yeah, more more than almost anyone in the book.
0: <laughs> exactly, which is. Yeah. There's so much in this book, I think, you know, to to unpack, to think about, to be entertained by, to to connect with and feel with. And I hope that even though we had a tiptoe around things in this conversation so that people can pick it up and enjoy it, that they will pick it up and see what we're talking about. Maybe come back and listen to this interview again and go, oh, I know exactly what they're saying now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, it's in some ways, it's very straightforward. It's it's just a mystery involving a nanny and a, a child who's in a terrible family.
0: We've been talking with Lucy Atkins. The new book is Magpie Lane. Thank you for your time today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, say it with me now. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we chat with Matt Haig, whose book The Midnight Library is currently sitting on several bestseller lists. I, for one, read it in two sittings. It's that good. Until then, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.